0: This episode contains pretty intense discussion around mental health and mental illness. If that's triggering for you in any way at all, please just skip this
1: one and then join back up with us again next week. This is Walker Lukens and you are listening to... to what we do here at the Song Confessional. So people tell us stories anonymously, and then we give those stories to songwriters and bands who write and record original songs based on these anonymous stories. We feature lots of those songs on this podcast, where you will hear the confession that inspired the song, the song itself, and then an interview with the songwriter. I'm sitting here with my favorite little... Quahog. Tell him your name, Big Clam. (laughs) I'm Zach Catanzaro. How's it going? It's going all right, Zach. How are you?
0: I would love some clams this time last year. Woo, we were doing good. That's right. We were up in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, we were... I think technically we were at the Folk Festival, but mostly we were at every seafood restaurant we could find.
1: We were living... What's that expression? High on the hog? High on the cohog. Eating incredible seafood that you have to pay... Uh, a, a stupid premium for here in Central Texas. I think the premium you should have to pay because it would be weird if it was cheaper. But it'd be scari- it'd be scary if it was cheap here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but eating oysters and clams and lobster and it not costing an arm and a leg. It's not fair.
0: Ooh. It really just isn't fair. I understand why everybody uh, turns summer into a verb
1: up there. I don't. But we—that's right. We were—we were there. We were there. Uh, we visit Austin. Uh, brought us there. And uh, we were at Newport Folk Festival for three days, and we collected probably 50 or 60 confessions, a bunch of stories. It was, it was an incredible three days, truly. It's one of these festivals that has an incredible reputation, similar to like the way people talked about Bonnaroo like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. where it just, it, you know, they, they give you that line of you just have to experience it. Yeah. And it's so true. Newport is incredibly special. Um, we were blown away by the caliber of confessions we were getting, yeah, completely and, and not and i and not just not just you know i don't mean it just because they were juicy, I just mean we had people coming into this trailer at eleven a m burying their fucking souls Com- completely sober. Yeah. Completely that, sober. A thing about Rhode Island is when you, at festivals, you can't serve hard liquor, and yeah. you can only drink beer in designated areas. So it's not like your usual music festival thing where people are loaded. Yeah, nobody was failing putting
0: on their flip-flop. It was like the flip-flops were on the feet. Everybody was well-spoken. It was it was a very different festival vibe from what we're used to. I mean, let alone the hard liquor, no evidence of hard drugs. Which, I mean, is everywhere in the festival
1: scene. I genuinely wonder if we talk to a drunk person the whole time. I I can't... I mean, yeah, I don't know. I can't say yes. Each of the next five episodes you're going to hear on the Song Confessional podcast was taken last summer at Newport Folk Festival. Uh, Over the past year, we've given lots of these confessions out, and... Without a lot of intent, realized, holy shit, we have like a mini-season here of just these amazing confessions that we took uh, over the course of 72 hours. So we're basically going to call this little mini-season 72 hours in Newport. I really tried to score some free seafood out of this whole thing, but couldn't figure out how to do it. So you just have to listen to the confessions. But just like for yourself, maybe put on your earbuds, go to the grocery store, just like hang out in the seafood aisle. Better yet, here's the cheapest thing to do go buy some shrimp, take them home, open the bag of shrimp, leave it out in the sun for like <laughs> nine hours until it smells like shit. Leave it outside, crack a window, get that sea smell, and then you'll know what it felt like to hear all these people bare their souls. I, I can't follow that up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Back in February, um, we were. We were in a whole other headspace uh, gearing up for, you know, season two, which has now kind of been broken up in these mini seasons. And um, Jim Eno says, hey, guys, uh, Kat Edmondson wants to do a song. So we say great. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> cool. I, I didn't see that coming. Just yeah. great news in a text.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Kat, uh, she, she's really got a special presence about her. She's She's got this, like, I th- I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's
1: like fairy dust. Her her music is like fairy dust. It really is. It it has this magical quality where it um it, it's it, we talk about this in the interview and sh- and she describes it better than I ever could. So we won't waste your time with too many. But it has this timeless quality to it that it just instantly makes you feel good. Yeah. And settled and and, and childlike. And but in like the part. The good the good part where your imagination's still pure mm-hmm. you know her latest record actually uh, it's a bunch of reimagining reimaginings of Disney songs kind of obscure Disney mm-hmm. songs. So right in line with what you're describing I I was familiar with Kat's music before obviously she did this project. Uh, she's she has a big name around Austin mm-hmm. of course, but I have to say that I really became a fan of her music. Uh, at her show in February. Yeah, we were lucky enough to see her as probably the last concert that both of us
0: saw in the before times when concerts were a thing.
1: Absolutely. Definitely the last uh, show. It's the last show I saw, yeah. Yeah,
0: same, same. Uh, Which, you know, thanks, Kat, for giving us a decent one to end on because we've seen a lot of terrible shows. (laughs) It would have sucked to have the last one be bad. And it was such
1: a great show. It It, was a great show. It was beautiful. Her, Her relationship with her fans... Is incredible. Mm-hmm. I've rarely, if ever, seen an artist uh, be able to talk between songs, it, not just segueing between. You know, no, certain it's, songs. Conversational. it's conversational. Conversational, and, and in a way that everybody's engaged. And People just shut the fuck up and listen, mm-hmm. and they loved her jokes. Yep. I also, I think um, maybe this is partially that we we dabble in the electronic music world, definitely in the loud ass music world. Mm-hmm. It was so great to see uh, five musicians really go for it without any effects without yeah. any you know synthesizers no well there was a synthesizer anyway
0: yeah but it was still low level tech it's very it's very
1: just great players yeah
0: yeah obviously and it's j- it's jazz jazz <laughs> 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 yeah it's i mean it's it's an excellent interpretation of modern modern jazz it's like it's relatable it's listenable it does have these moments where it kind of rocks out and is groovy and is dancey. And then these incredibly soft, really tender moments that are still completely engaging and mm-hmm. nobody is getting up to get a drink or to go to the bathroom in those
1: moments. There, are uh, yeah. planted in those seats. It was amazing. It was an amazing show and such a, I didn't realize it was a kiss off to uh, how life used to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of nostalgia yeah. in that one. <laughs> but it was fantastic and I was feel really lucky that we got to go. Zach, tell us about the confession we gave to Kat.
0: This week's confessor stepped into our trailer on the second day of the festival. She was a part of this large group that was all dressed in white that we'd noticed a day before. I learned they attended Newport together every single year. However, this was her first year and she really didn't know any of these people before coming.
1: Nothing really prepared me for the story I was about to hear. Well, without further ado, here's our confession.
2: Confession. I met the love of my life uh, about over a year ago, and basically, what people had said to me. I'm an event planner. I'm head of experiential marketing for this advertising company, and I'm a very like type A, like very by the book sort of person in my professional and in my personal life. I'm just sort of like the planner for everything, for all my friends. I kind of always have my shit together.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And um, uh, I have friends of mine that said I wasn't really open to dating or meeting anybody and I had friends of mine say we have the perfect guy for you to set you up with but we're going to warn you he is spontaneous and crazy and not organized one bit but he's sort of a yes person which is like what I needed in my life was Mm -hmm. somebody that wanted to like go on adventures and do things that were different and like fulfilling and meaningful Um, so we were both kind of told about each other and immediately, he lived in San Francisco, I lived in New York, immediately um, I met him and I just knew, I mean, I saw his picture and I knew. And it wasn't about attraction, it was just about like hearing about him as a person and then actually meeting him Mm -hmm. um, and connecting with him. And right away, I mean, we had so much chemistry and we just both were like floored. So for the next nine months, we did not stop seeing each other every other week. We never went 10 days apart so I would go to San Francisco or he would come to New York, we would make up business trips we would meet in the middle we would go on like every adventure possible and um, it was just the greatest I mean he was like the happiest person and for someone like me that's like so rigid and you know so sort of stuck in my ways Mm -hmm. he totally challenged me to say yes to things that I never would have said yes to and go on trips and adventures and road trips and see music and just totally challenge myself and find really joy and meaning in life.
0: Yeah, maybe freeing you in a way it sounds it was like.
2: so free. I mean, it was like discovering a new side of myself that I I just never knew. Um, so, he and I have this sort of bicoastal relationship. We worked in the same industry. I'd heard of him and everyone was like, you know, he's, like, this huge personality and the most amazing guy. Like, no one ever had anything bad to say about him. But
3: mm-hmm.
2: so it, it, he was sort of, like, this, like, living legend. And then I ended up, like, meeting him and actually getting to know him. And he was so, so much better than anything that anyone had ever described. But we did this for nine months. And then we decided, you know, right away we're going to get married and we're going to have kids. And I started going to a fertility clinic and, um, you know, doing all of those things. And... Uh he started getting a little stressed out. Not about me or about moving in together and him moving he, he decided to move to New York and it wasn't about our relationship. That was actually like kind of our salvation and all of this and like our saving grace was and what we were looking forward to. The light at the end of the tunnel was him moving to New York and us being together and buying a place in Brooklyn and doing the Catskills bullshit that everybody fucking does. And mm-hmm. um and starting a family and, you know, he was like the last of his friends that uh, were not married or had babies and finally, you know, he moved and he had a lot of, you know, other things in his life that were pretty stressful. Um, So I knew that based on the things that he had told me, that the stress was very situational. And I wasn't really worried. I was worried, but I wasn't worried in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed pretty normal, given the circumstances, that he would be stressed out or anxious or having trouble sleeping. Like, those were all things that I struggled with regularly as, like, an experiential event planner. Like, those, are th- I'm always stressed. That's how I, like, live my life.
0: Yeah, I can, I can share that yeah, with you. I'm sure you, you can yeah. relate.
2: Um, so, uh, he moved to New York and I noticed that he wasn't sleeping at all. And it was not like the normal toss and turn. It was sort of an inordinate amount. Um, And he just kept getting more and more stressed and more and more anxious and more and more sad. And as days went on, um, I said, you know what, I think it's time for us to go to a doctor. And we went and the doctor said, you know what, based on your situation, I really think that this is normal. I don't think this is anything. But Adam had shared something with me that was kind of unique and interesting, which I told the doctor, and he said that he wasn't worried about it. But he said, you know, one time when I was 19, I, uh went on spring break. I went to UC Davis and everybody went to Cabo for spring break in California because that's like the normal thing that people do, I guess, there. Mm -hmm. And I did a bunch of drugs or whatever. I had like normal fun, not like weird drugs, like normal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) happy drugs. And I came back and I just felt like really euphoric and really up and like everything tasted good and the sky was the most beautiful blue. And and I went to a doctor because my parents were kind of worried about me, and, you know, they mentioned that it could be that I was bipolar, but probably not because of all the drugs I did, so it was hard to tell. But I went on medicine and for two weeks, and then I felt better, and then I never had to take medicine again, and that was when I was 19, and now I'm 36, so fuck, you know? I don't think that it's that. And but I feel like I should tell you because I feel like that's a good data point for Mm -hmm. us going to a psychiatrist. And I said okay. So we told the doctor, and the doctor said, you know, I can't really tell you, but from what I hear and how you look and how you sound and you know the emotion that you're exhibiting and the feeling that you're describing, it feels like it's just anxiety. Um, And it's situational. And I really could not say that the thing that happened to you when you were 19 after you did a bunch of fucking coke was. In Mexico, P.S. was you know bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know we went to this doctor and we followed the directions and things just got worse and worse and worse. And um, eventually one day he didn't know who I was anymore, um, and he totally lost his mind and lost control. And that was the point that I you know took him to the hospital and they said you know for sure. This is a psychotic episode. This is bipolar disorder. And it was so crazy because it's, like, the person that has the most control and, like, lives their life the happiest all of a sudden was so anxious and so sad and Mm -hmm. so, like, totally inflicted by all of this pain and torture. And it was so hard watching him. Like, his brow was furrowed 24-7 for months. Mm -hmm. So... um,
0: How how long... uh Was was it from the time that, like, you noticed the change to this point in the... Four months. That's four months, okay.
2: I guess now it's longer, but um, I'll get to the end of the story and it'll make more sense. But Mm. basically, he moved at the end of February. Um, We were doing the whole bike with still me living in San Francisco for most of the time, and then him coming to New York on occasion, and, you know, Um, end of February, he moved in New York. And we were—we had give, gave ourselves two weeks. Facebook paid for all of his stuff to be shipped. We sold his condo and his car, and we're buying this place in Brooklyn and this brownstone. And we wanted two bedrooms for when we have a baby. And then oh, he sold everything, and we were so excited to look. And then he got there, and by day four, it was when I noticed that he wasn't sleeping, oh, and was things that, were off. It was that and, fast. Um, very quickly our stuff kind of started like piling up dust in storage and um, in this warehouse that Facebook had paid for all of this shit to be moved and kind of held and condemned for like months and um, so it was around March when you know I noticed that the things that he were he was saying and the way that he was acting and the fact that he just didn't know what was reality and what was fake that I had to take him To someone different and I took him to the hospital and they said sure enough it's bipolar and they said you know here's the bad news that this sucks and this is the worst and that people lose their fucking minds when they're you know when this goes untreated and that this should have been treated since he was 19 years old so between him and his parents and everyone that didn't tell you this something went wrong um, so that was number one. And then number two was, but you know what, bipolar disorder, once you get it, it's sort of this chemical imbalance. It's the only psychiatric condition that is like 100% treatable based on like, I'm depleted of serotonin or dopamine or like these chemicals in my brain. So once you get the formula right, then you're just sort of your normal self. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said it's the easiest psychiatric condition to treat. So once we stabilize him and he's not, you know, in this episode anymore. Um, you guys can live a normal life. You can still have those kids. You can still do those things. You can still go to fucking Newport Folk Festival like you did every single year. Um, so I felt really hopeful. I took him to the doctor. I, I took off of work. Um, I took care of him. His parents never came. Um, Wow, so then, his,
0: his parents were pretty absent in all of this.
2: They just, they don't want to believe that their son wasn't perfect, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um...
2: And, you know, finally, life started progressing and we went to go visit my family and um, we had this amazing trip and we did all these incredible things in New York that we wanted to do. He was, like, a really big fan of Banksy and, like, all this, like, just amazing food that we shared when we, like, visited Europe and we found restaurants in New York that had like, the same types of pastries that they sell in Portugal. And yeah. we had our favorite like buttery Chardonnay from this tiny boutique winery in Napa from when I had spent all this time in San Francisco. And you know, I thought that that meant that it was progress. You know, we ate Taco Bell for dinner one night because it was like our favorite guilty pleasure. And I just thought that that meant, you know what, he's getting better and he's feeling more like himself. And um, so much so that I went back to work and I worked a full day for the first time in four months. Mm-hmm. And I came home and um, I walked in, and you know, he, he was hanging in our bedroom.
0: I'm so sorry. It's
2: okay. You know, all those things that we did, you know, the Taco Bell and the Chardonnay and, All that shit was because it was like his last meal and his last sort of adventures before he left his life. Because on the medication, you know, they said you can't, you know, drink that much and you can't dabble in the occasional whatever fun stuff that you do at a festival and um, you can't. When you travel, you have to be cognizant of the time change. And we were going to Morocco, and that meant that we were going to be on a plane for a really long time. And fuck, what time do you, does he take his medicine then, yeah. you know? Um, so that, those became our conversations rather than like, you know, this, the adventures that we used to plan. It was more about the when do you take your pills and oh, is this our life now? Um, and yeah, so. Did he did that, and two. I found him. And I have been struggling with the reality of of that for a long time. And
0: How long has it been?
2: It's been two and a half months. Two and a half months. But So after he died, I, I kind of thought, you know, should I continue to do our plan? Should I still go on the trip to Morocco? Should I still go to Newport? Should I, you know, go to that friend's christening or wedding? Or Adam was supposed to be the officiant. Like, shit, what Fuck. am I supposed to do? <laughs> he was like that guy for everybody. Yeah. Um, and pretty much for everything so far I've said yes, and although it sucks, and sometimes usually the night before I want to say, like, absolutely not, because I do not want to be in this, like, emotional headspace where I'm kind of trapped. Mm-hmm. Um, like a 30-year-old widow, that's how I feel, which sucks. Yeah. Um...
3: Did
0: he leave anything behind for you? A, yeah, he
2: left a note. He
0: did. That's... I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that does he it. He
2: said, I mean, he absolved all of that, like those feelings of acknowledgement, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, like all of my self conscious thoughts and guilt and all of the things. What if we did this and what if we did that? And yeah. did the drugs kill him? And I'm such a fucking believer that, like, I mean, in my stance was his family's not here. I have these professionals that are telling us what to do, and they say that he needs this medicine in order to even him out. So my feeling was, I'm, I didn't go to school for psychiatry. Like, I just trust you, like, number one bipolar specialist in the entire fucking world at NYU Langone. Like, you are the person that I'm going to hand my, you know, partner's life over to because I have no one else. And mm-hmm. his family was really unhappy that, with the fact that he had to take these things. And uh, yeah. when he died, um, you know, they, there was a time that I called his mom after I found him. And she said, it was the drugs that you gave him that killed him. But I know that that's not true.
0: It's not true.
2: It's not. When you have this chemical imbalance, you need need that. And if we hadn't helped him, he would have driven himself crazy way sooner. I think I kept him alive for a few more months. Um, So he wrote about that in his note and he said, you know, you did everything. I'm in awe of your courage, but... And I was the first person that he wrote wrote to, and... It just meant a lot, you know. I'm so glad that he left something behind, because I feel like there's so many people that don't even get that, you know? I hear all it's, these awful that's horror true. stories.
0: That's true. I haven't... It's not been a lover, but with friends, I've yeah. experienced suicide and with no answer and no explanation. Yeah. And At least I
2: have a sickness and... Yeah. I, have, I have a lot that I can.
0: There's real reasons, and it's yeah. it's not what his mother said. Right. I and know. and that is that is true, and um, it's good that you know that.
2: Yeah, I know, I know. It's just, <sighs> but it makes you think, you know. Yeah, you of course it does. Question your own shit. You're like. Of
0: course it does. There's yeah. days
2: when I'm like, because now I deal with PTSD because I found him and yeah. I had to cut him down and Fuck. you know, and I think like. God people tell me that I should take antidepressants and and I second guess you know just to get through this hard time yeah not I I, unfortunately or fortunately I don't fucking know I have a brain that's equipped to handle trauma in a positive way that I can get through this and I know I will and I know that I'll find love again and I'll make it through this but for the time being they're like you know do this right now and um It'll help you and soften the blow, and of course I second guess and I and I'm not even intentionally doing it. It's like sort of subconsciously I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck. But did the drugs kill him? And are they gonna kill me too? Like, oh, you know, it's That's, weird. It's heavy. It's being it's here heavy. and being kind of an outsider to this group of this family, and everyone's been really welcoming and wonderful. But um, one of the reasons that Newport was special because it's fucking Newport and the people that come together and the music that you hear is so amazing. But also. Um, it's his birthday tomorrow, so
3: oh, man. that
2: is why we are wearing white, and we are sort of all going to celebrate him and him bringing us all together. Um, but...
0: Uh, it's it's, it's obvious that his legacy is continuing. Uh, yeah, I mean having on. having that kind of kind of thing right right now you might feel like a bit of an outsider, but it, it sounds to me like they're gonna feel like family in the not that distant
3: future. I so
2: too. I mean he was an enigma. Like it's weird because you become like I've become a detective, you know? Like, yeah. I, I traced over, I talked to him at four o'clock, I came home he wasn't answering my texts at five thirty and I rushed home because I was so fucking worried. One of his best friends who's here, who plans the whole fucking Newport trip, said to me, how's Adam doing? And I said, because he hasn't responded to my text. And I said, on the day, at 5.30. He said, oh, he's fine. No, don't worry. He's He's been having a difficult time, and sometimes it's hard for him to text other people back. But honestly, he's been better than ever. And we just did all these incredible things, like, uh, all around New York, and we've been getting out, and... It's just been amazing. And I know that he doesn't mean it. It's, you know, don't take it personally. And, um, you know, and then I texted him and I said, Hey, like, you know, Joe just texted me because he said that you haven't answered him. And I said, when you don't answer him, it worries him. And then he didn't respond. And I said, and when you don't answer me, it worries me too. And I knew at that moment when I said it, I just knew I knew that something was wrong.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: like, and I started just fucking running home, panicking. And I walked in and, oh, I just knew. It was the worst. To be, to be like, as prepared too as to like,
0: Yeah, you've been... That it's a possibility. Exactly. You've been concerned. You've been aware. You've been alert. You've been all these things.
2: Yeah, and that was another thing for, like, his family and friends that didn't really understand. They don't understand mental illness. They don't understand that it's just as serious as a heart attack or diabetes or, like, cancer, you know. Like, they all thought, well, if you knew, then why weren't you home? It's like, fuck. Yeah. I was... I... I took care of the guy for four months. I, we missed weddings and christenings and we, holidays, and I stayed with him while he was being taken care of in a psych ward. I mean, it's like
0: my you know, whole world just You know that totally, that guilt is theirs, not yours. I know,
2: I know. I
0: know. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: No, it's good. No, but it's, you know, it is, it is what it is, but, yeah. you know, but... The silver lining is living life to the fullest, which is such a fucking cliche, annoying thing that I hate that I never would have ever said before this situation had happened. But it's so important. I don't know. I mean, there's one song that I feel like... Because I don't know if you felt this about your dad. You were like, there's something that, like because I don't I mean and you have to be a believer in all this shit and honestly I was a total fucking skeptic I'm from like New York like Mm -hmm. I am a very realist like pretty much before this atheist type of person like like don't bother me with like your godly bullshit because like you know, look what the Catholic church did to like so many people. <laughs> like that's how I was raised. So. Ah, same. Um, that's so
0: kind of like, the this is an o- homage and a fuck you at the same right? time.
3: <laughs> exactly. So
2: <laughs> I was so like, not a believer in this stuff, but when he died, I just found myself searching for signs and searching for validation and answers and a message, anything to talk to him, anything to know that he's here. Um, so the one thing that I think will be the thing. And when I met him, it was a thing was you know, we had been talking. and The first night that we met, I mean, we shared everything. And um, This Must Be The Place by The Talking Heads is, like, our favorite song ever. I love that song. Yeah. It's I love amazing. The Talking and Heads. It was going to be our wedding song. And um, when he was really upset and stressed, um, we used to listen to it. And, you know, it was just, like, our thing. And it was, like, even when shit gets really hard and is really bad or when it's really happy, like, we're just we're exactly in the place that we're supposed to be. So we used to say that to each other all the time and sing it to each other. And I haven't heard it yet since you died, but I'm just, I think that that will be my sign. When I get it, it'll be something about the talking heads in mm-hmm. some way. So I hope
0: that. Well, I really appreciate you, you and uh, you know your time here and your willingness. So thank you so much. Yeah,
2: thank you. Have a great rest in the festival.
0: Likewise.
1: now here's Where I Am by Kat Edmondson
4: This must be the place
1: song. Uh, I am talking with Jim Eno here about this beautiful song he produced with Kat Edmonton called Where I Am. Jim, tell me about how this how this beautiful song came together.
5: Well we were communicating about the track and she told me that it was in six eight, which is the time signature, which is like a swing. And she told me the tempo, which was very, very slow.
1: So so before she showed up she had she had written the vocal melody she knew it was in six eight. She knew it was slow, so that's what you knew.
5: Correct, okay. and she had written all the words and everything. The other, the other interesting thing about Cat is that uh, she doesn't play an instrument, so she wrote all the lyrics and the vocal melodies. And I knew we had to figure out what the under uh, underlying chords were, so I knew we were going to do that like straight away. So I invited uh, Wes to be here, too, for that, since he's a badass when it comes to that.
1: This is James Wesley Essery that he's talking about.
5: So then Cat shows up, Wes is here, and they go about the process of figuring out what the underlying chords of this track is, which was pretty amazing. I mean, Cat would sing, and then Wes would be at the piano mapping everything out. You know, do you like this chord? How about we do that or whatever? And they they came up with the form while they were, or the chords. They came up with the chords, and while they were doing that, I was honing in on the rhythm, and then mapping out sort of from uh, a production side what we should use for instrumentation and things like that.
1: So it starts, and I think what you hear is a Fender Rhodes keyboard. That's the first keyboard in, and then by the end of the track. Uh, there's a piano, an actual acoustic piano playing. It sounds like, yeah, right. Um, and it also sounds like the the synthesizers that are that are on the track they change over the course of the song. Is that correct?
5: Um, I think it may be the same synthesizer, just different patches, mm. and um, yeah. And I think also higher registers too. You know, I mean, one thing about this track is that Cat had a a cool vision for it where she wanted the first half to be the dark half, and then she wanted the second half to be hopeful. She wanted to um, try to turn this tragedy into something that, you know, um, throw a positive hopeful spin on it, I guess, through the music. And so from a production standpoint, that's what I was trying to do also. So Rhodes, dark instrumentation um, in the first half, then strings in a higher register. The piano is a, a, um, a pretty bold instrument most of the time. You know, I mean, it's a definite statement when you put an acoustic piano on a track. So I felt that would be a really good addition to the second half and give it a grandiose, hopeful feel.
1: You can really see, like I- extreme attention to detail in her lyrics because not only is she in interpolating the talking head song that is mentioned in the confession, but she's right. like, like the, the 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 not just the message is evolving, but it it's almost a it's almost a story.
5: The lyrics are great. Um, I agree, and the attention to detail is amazing. but, when you listen to the confession, then you hear the track. Mm-hmm. I mean, man, it like, it, it really hits home, and it shows uh, how powerful this format is, in my opinion. You know, being able to hear a story, and then hearing the artist interpret that story. Yeah. Where if we heard the song by itself, it could it could be ambiguous and vague, or, you know, you sort of get your own interpret interpretation of what you think the lyrics mean Mm -hmm. this sort of it's right in the wheelhouse of the confession but it's so respectful and and i mean it's uh Mm -hmm. uh, pretty amazing
1: yeah yeah i mean i i think one thing that i love is that this must be the place the talking head song it's sort of like this practical love song in the sense that like it is a love song but just in that phrase this must be the place it's sort of about how your expectation of what um, romantic love, they're never met, you know? It's like, this must yeah, be the place. Right. Like, I'm feeling all the things, right? Like, this is it, I think. Uh, and yeah. I i think Kat's, it's a case where though those lyrics were obviously an inspiration for Kat, and I think that she gave them 10 times as much gravity as maybe even David Byrne ever intended, you know?
5: Right, yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Well, it's a really gorgeous song, and... and uh, I'm. I uh, am obviously a big fan of your work. Have worked with you a lot, and I think this is one of my favorite favorite things that you've ever worked on. I really love it.
5: Oh, thank you, man.
1: We we talk. Uh, I talked to Cat more about her lyrics and her approach to singing and writing in our interview. 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 Why did you move to New York from Austin?
6: Well. I've, I love New York City and I always wanted to be there. I just ha- have admired it in films and whatnot since I was a kid. And then my musical background is the Great American Songbook, which was essentially born in New York City. So there's, a, there's an understanding of it and a, a, a celebration of the Great American Songbook in a way that just doesn't exist. In Texas, I mean, there's I mean people obviously understand the Great American Songbook, but but it's part of the culture in New York It's part of people's history there and and it's like readily part of Events that are going on. It's it's just so much connected to to where I come from that I needed to go be with my people
1: Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I think in New York. There's a, a greater appreciation for jazz Mm-hmm. And the culture around it, mm-hmm. just that sense of being a vocalist and that being in itself like a career you have outside of being a songwriter, right? In a way that I think is sort of like there's not really a space for that in the Austin music scene in the same way.
6: When I started, I mean, I'm a songwriter too, and I and I often write in the style of old standards. But when I started performing in Austin, it was limited as to where I could perform. What was available to me was like the, the restaurants, you know, steak restaurants, where people mm-hmm. would think like, oh, steak and jazz, martinis and jazz. And mm-hmm. the one jazz club at the time, which was the Elephant Room, I know it's expanded now. It took a lot to to really be considered like a, a legitimate artist, that I wasn't just background music um, in Austin and... It kind of took leaving, and <laughs> in, in a way, um, to be able to come back and bring what I was doing and introduce what I was doing, like on a, in a way that, could stand next to what what everybody else in Austin was doing.
1: So I'm curious, you know, as a songwriter, did you used to write in other styles before you sort of found this voice and this um, older aesthetic?
6: I did. Being from Texas, I grew up in Houston and. I heard a lot of country music. I was listening to a lot of like contemporary country stations, and I, I wrote country songs. I wrote in, in a kind of 1970s singer-songwriter mainstream style, if you will, uh, because I was listening to old songs as well. I, was, I checked out a lot of oldies, but I didn't really write in that style, like the doo-wop stuff and early rock and roll stuff. Uh, yeah. But I was, yeah, I was trying my hand. I was, I was writing in kind of more of a contemporary pop style as well. But what I discovered was there, I was, I had a great affinity for melody and harmony, and you know, I would start writing these songs, and I didn't play an instrument, so I'd bring it to a musician, and they'd be trying to figure out what the chord was that I was hearing, and and eventually we'd kind of stumble on it, and they'd be like, oh, well, that's a jazz chord. <laughs> So I, wow. I discovered, like, of course, of course it is, because that's the first music I learned. And and so, you know, that made a great impression on me. It was, it was embedded somewhere in in my memory as a kid.
1: Yeah, totally segued yourself into my next question, too. <laughs> so that's amazing. I think it's really cool. I think uh, wh- another thing that has impressed me about your last record, which I've been listening to for the past week, is um, I would loosely call your style, like a sort of vintage AM pop, you know, world, but the themes are current.
6: Thanks. If anything, that might speak to the fact that I'm, the music is not novel to me because I, when I learned it, I didn't perceive it to be old or different Mm. or nostalgic or quaint or whatever someone might associate with old music. To me, it was my first understanding of music and, yeah. and then everything that came after that was, I perceived to be different or unusual or an interesting take off of the original music that I thought it was. So in, I never wanted to feel like I'm putting on a costume and I don't have to work in that sense to, to avoid that because to me, it's, it's a living thing. It's as contemporary as it ever was. And so I love to sing about contemporary things because this is, I, I live in the now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <of
1: course. laughs> well, I, I feel like we have to, uh, we have to talk about this, this confession and this uh, incredible song you wrote yeah. oh. and recorded with Jim. And, um, I guess first thing is, w- what was this confession about in your own words? W- what did we just listen to?
6: Well, first of all, this confession was Incredibly surprising because as I listened to it. I had no idea where it was leading. I just couldn't have known and the spirit of this woman is Knowing the all of the circumstances after having listened to the whole confession the spirit that she has is Even though it's it's clearly heavy what she's telling us about. It's she's quite vital and refreshingly so. Um, and in fact, it's it's very heartening to hear that she's she has a strong will to live uh, because she has lost the love of her life after he's committed suicide, and and she found him, um, and then upon finding him, was tormented by not only his death that totally caught her off guard, but his family who essentially tried to blame her. Um, and I can't imagine what that would be like. So when I heard this and I heard her, she was really generous actually in sharing this story. Like she's quite likable.
1: (laughs) She was quite likable. I I agree with you in that. I, I also, one of the, um, um, remarkable things about that confession, too is that the way she lays it out, you don't know where it's going, yeah, and she's just giving you the facts and it's it's just so raw, and she was an amazing storyteller and obviously a very strong and resilient person, which all comes across very clearly, I think,
6: yeah, yeah and. And when I started working on this song, it was very clear to me that I I had to, I had this sense that I wanted to give her a message from him (laughs) because she was there at the Newport Folk Festival and she was saying that she was looking for some kind of sign that she was doing what he wanted her to do yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: I had some questions about your lyrics. So the, the first line is this must be the place where I'm supposed to be. That is her singing to whom? Did you sing it from, from her
6: perspective? Um, yes. In fact, I, I sang the the first chorus, if you will, like, the, you know, the the first whole part was her singing and then and then the second half of the song is him replying and I, this must be the place, um, is the name of the song that they shared the talking head song that was their song that they listened mm-hmm. to all the time together.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, you know, as a listener of this song, you have a, a real ability to channel the, the sadness, just the real sorrow in the subject matter. Um, and I say that as a listener, and of course I could just be like putting that on you, but is there a trick to, to doing that as a as a singer, to channel the emotion of
6: the song? Um, it's empathic, I guess. I'm just literally imagining myself as the voice of the song. And so I put myself in her position or tried. I'm very interested in, in interpreting that sort of thing. And it actually drove me to acting school. Wow. A few years ago.
1: I mean, that is definitely a, a, a part of the Great American Songbook is that kind of delivery. Yeah. But I hear it in your, your songs and on your records. You, you do a, a fantastic job of um, really showing that and that is I think that is something that is not at all part of like modern pop music you know how did you sort of develop that empathy is it is it a kind of acting thing for you and a joy in playing other roles or it does it is it connect back to maybe why you started writing songs and singing in the first place
6: I learned the great American songbook and music through old movies because a lot of the songs were written for Broadway shows that were then turned into films you know or they used the songs from the shows and in different films but either way you know Frank Sinatra was acting and singing and so I thought that's just how it worked I thought if if you were delivering a song it was the same thing as if you were delivering lines as an actor it was just an extension of emphasizing the mood and the tone of the moment or or explaining what was happening in the story and of course I didn't think about it that way Four and five years old when I started watching, but I just took that for for what it was, and it, and I assumed that I would be doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. What's the line of this song that you're either the most proud of, or you think is the most powerful?
6: I wouldn't dare take pride in this song because I'm. In fact, I feel uh, with all humility, I hope that that this is. Somewhat of a comfort to her, and not in any way disturbing or or upsetting to her already, you know, horrific experience. So it's just an offering, and I and so I've ne- I can't even think about taking pride in it. But the most impactful, I planted little things in the song that were direct references to this must be the place, the Talking head song. For instance, feet on the ground, head in the sky. When her fiancé essentially replies in this song, he's encouraging her to keep going, feet on the ground, head in the sky. So if, if she wants to feel encouraged by that, you know, that's what they shared. I'm, 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 it's just, I'm, whether or not that is encouraging her, it's me hoping that, that she would recognize that. And, and then at the end, it ends with, and if someone asks you, this is where I am. And in the song, in the Talking Heads tune, David Byrne says, and if someone asks, this is where I'll be. So I, I deliberately put in echoes of of their favorite song, and also, in her fiancé's reply, he says, "Strong and wise, with a light in your eyes." And I try to imagine them listening to this song together. Everybody knows the part that goes, "Oh, you've got the light in your eyes," and and I wonder if if they ever shared that as, as though it were the two of them, you know, cause that song was very personal to them. So I I hoped that those things could be a comfort to her.
1: Mm-hmm. And ha- have you ever lost someone close to you from suicide?
6: I have, but, um, when they, died I was young and I it so I didn't have the understanding entirely or maybe the emotional I don't know when you're young not everything always sinks in or you don't always consider what it is that's happened Um, but I I, I have I there is someone um, a family member that we loved very dearly, who um, took her own life. And i it, it's more sad to me now than it was as a child.
1: Yeah. I've seen during quarantine that you've been doing some live streaming, which, yeah. which many of us are doing.
6: Yes, I have. The live stream that I'm doing is actually a variety show. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to have a variety show on television.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
6: Um, this is not as glamorous as what I had envisioned but I have a set I have like you know curtains and lights and my boyfriend slash he's the drummer in my band and he produced my last two records with me he's running the technical stuff and it's all trial by fire because he's not an audio guy or a light guy so he's just learning how to do it all but we're creating this show and it's, it's fun. We're doing these pre-taped segments and I'm doing some comedic sketches and I'm doing interviews with friends and other artists and bringing on like other talent and we're throwing around all kinds of ideas of how to expand this. And it's actually something I intend to keep doing even when we're able to go back out and play for people and play on the road. It'll just be something I'll also be doing because it's such a fun medium. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: I've been around a lot of music over the last few months. I've made a lot of music. I always am listening to music, but something about the pandemic... And the Black Lives Matter uprising and just everything going on. I felt so genuinely unmoved by music over the last few months. Mm. Uh, and and I, I don't mean... Like, I'm still listening to it all the time, you know? But something about that like recording... The, emotion, the emotional fortitude isn't what it used to be, maybe? It just all seems so irrelevant. Yeah, you I know? get that. There's that... Uh, Theodore Adorno quote, I think I'm going to say this correctly, but he says, there's no poetry after Auschwitz. <laughs> and it's like the idea, of course, of just like when real life really intercedes. What is entertainment? Yeah, and if uh, what inter- if what music is to you is escapism, and yeah. it's fucking worthless after, you know. And that's a little bit what especially lyrics have felt like to me. Yeah, that makes sense. But this song, I mean, and this recording... Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jim's work. I've never heard something like this come out. It really is a pretty magic combo. Uh, I, I mean,
0: honestly, I, I think it sounds as good as song sound I and mean, it's mm-hmm. quite perfect in it's composition and it's emotion and the way it builds and the way it drops out. It just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm biased cause I took the story, but I, I feel it all, and it's hard. I mean, my my eyes water
1: up listening to the song as much as the story itself. I mean, that's that's the saddest confession we've ever had, correct? 100%. I can think of a few other confessions that were uh, as heart-wrenching, but I don't know that they ever made it onto the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple in particular that were
0: definitely very heart-wrenching, but as I, far as episodes go, this is one we'd been saving for the right moment in a way.
1: You will, you will find soon, listener, dear listener, uh, over the next few episodes, just the the caliber of story that we were getting from people. We had to keep it a little light, you know, in, in the name of entertainment. We didn't do five uh, heart-wrenching stories but we could have. But we could have, yeah. And they will eventually all come out, so you will hear more from Newport. But, I mean, the kinds of things people, t- why? why I don't know. They, it's just something about the
0: group that attends that festival just brought this rawness and were so willing to take an hour out of their very expensive day that they paid to not come talk to us mm-hmm. and sweat in a trailer and just, like, Bear their souls. I, yeah. I don't know. I still, I still look back on that weekend as just so validating for this entire project.
1: I ooh, I, let's say some problematic things about art. Do you, do you think it's a folk thing? It's not a folk thing. That's not why people were more honest. It definitely flies in the face of our alcohol theory. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it really does because previously we thought like
0: a little liquid courage was required. True. And this
1: proved us to be very wrong. It's also okay, so it's it's hard to call this a a folk festival, yeah, it's more of a label these days, yeah, so so, okay. so it's not a folk music fan thing. Um, is it a New England thing? Could be a New England thing, Maybe you think so.
0: Maybe a festival cap thing. I mean, Bonnaroo, we're looking at eighty thousand plus attendance. so it's just chaos from the second you step in, whereas, Newport, they cap at 10,000. So it's almost like you have to make friends. You see similar faces. Like,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, this story happened to come out of day two after we already noticed the group on day one. Mm -hmm. And we kind of mingled with them a little more. And it's just like there's a more familiarity about this festival. It's like, and I mean, also on that note, it seems like a lot of people go every year. So, if you're capped at 10,000 and 3,000 people are going every year. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they do usually sell out before the lineups announced. Yeah. So, so it's just
0: got this community vibe that you don't feel in the chaos of like the traditional, you know, 80,000 person festival.
1: Yeah. Maybe it's the seafood.
0: Could just be the seafood.
1: Mm hmm. Good wonder, Omegas. Yeah. So, is a, is a Caw Hog like, what's, okay. Roll with me. I got a long, bad analogy. Oh, here we go. So oysters are like an aphrodisiac, right? So they say. Maybe fat clams are like truth serum. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, part of the power of this confession, it's not really the subject matter. I mean, it it is moving. That is a trigger for everyone to lose the love of your life. But... She was a phenomenal uh, storyteller, yeah. And and you know we, we edit these confessions for clarity and and but it, t- to have someone kind of relay this information to you, and it's not kind of full of interpretation. You don't necessarily know where it's going.
0: Yeah, I, I had no idea. I mean, it it kind of blindsided me and, in a way,
1: and and like you know her sort of saying. How much she trusted the doctors.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, you trust them. Yeah. And, and after this happened, to not have had that shift for her, or, or she's just a remarkable storyteller and
0: incredible storyteller, in, incredible strength of human soul and mm-hmm. perseverance in general. Uh, at, yeah. w- at one point in that confession, she talks about it like, oh, it happened a long time ago, and then it comes out that it was only two and a half months before that. Yeah, which is not long at all. Which is not long at all. And I mean, she has her own trauma that she, I mean, she is recognizing and she's talking about, but it's so low on her totem pole compared to how much she she cared for him that it, it seems like she's I don't know. She's just she's just so well processed at this point, and such an early point. Her strength is just through the roof. It it really impresses me how well she's able to cope with such a fresh trauma, and to be able to talk about it so openly, and to be able to cry because it's worth crying over. But at the same time, finish that sentence with like this message of positivity and strength. It was just I don't know, I was just so very very impressed by the whole thing.
1: Yeah. I wonder too, you know. It would be so nice to know where she's at with this. You yeah. Know. And also, I wonder too. I mean, this guy's family—just what shitty fucking people to sort of, yeah, to, to, to blame her, and then to also, I mean, I I I just it, the complete and utter denial about mental health. It is it is really shitty and unfortunate
0: but I I have to have like a little empathy for them too because mm-hmm. dealing with that kind of situation a family member that is severely bipolar having manic episodes especially being late onset in life like this mm-hmm. it is a very hard thing for families to deal with I've and I've seen it firsthand and not that it's an excuse yeah. and blaming her is horrible but they also are experiencing their own trauma and their own pain and their own suffering that like they obviously just are nowhere near as good at dealing with it as she is I mean it's like yeah it's I mean I know game. it's
1: tough but it's just so shitty it is shitty yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not it's very I'm not shitty. saying it's not and, and I mean all all of the people I mean part of why I think she's such an amazing um, storyteller in this is that she doesn't seem to have a ton of awareness about mental health mm. and so she is very trusting of the doctors mm-hmm. throughout and even after um it it just it it's part of what i think makes it even more tragic you know yeah in, in in how it's revealed in the confession and also just how it played out it's it's just so heartbreakingly sad
0: yeah it really is because i my belief is she did everything she could Absolutely. she did everything right totally you she know did everything by she the book she do. did everything right it's obvious that she cared about him she was mm-hmm. trying to get him the help he needed the only way that help is even offered is to see doctors to get prescriptions to like go through the process i mean we don't we don't know any other way so if the experts are telling us this mm-hmm. is what it is it's like yeah we believe them every time whether it's with our health or our engine you know
1: it's like yeah there's a lack of information for two people who uh like to hash things out suicide is a particularly dark pit yeah meaning i don't think there are a lot of insightful or uh interesting perspectives on it i mean it does it it does seem more acceptable
0: now yeah yeah one of one of the best insights I feel like I've ever heard on the topic is from our good friend Jack O'Brien of the Bright Light Social Hour yeah. who um, lost his brother slash band manager mm-hmm. due to suicide a few years ago and talking with Jack about it, it's just only he would have the ability and the power to make it a beautiful thing and a lot of that revolves around suffering and just truly wanting to see people you love stop suffering. I mean, it's just after a while whether it be something like cancer or a mental health issue. Yeah. Just whatever is eating away at the people we love, we want it to end. And totally. And in that moment th- there was, you know, a separation between his sadness of losing his brother and his relief for his brother. Yeah. And to be able to like lean into the relief side really does give you a different perspective on suicide because it it's not like this demonized thing that we've kind of painted it in the past where well, the, it's like very christianized the perspective. christianized perspective of yeah. like you you failed you gave up and you're doing this to your family and it's just not that that's just not a reality yeah. it's like the only reason suicide happens is because people feel helpless completely and utterly helpless and alone and unable to be a part of society in, you know a productive way and to be able to love themselves and to give love to others it's like you can't function uh, at the most baseline of human needs like you can't fulfill your needs and there's no way to fill anybody else's needs and you just feel tapped out
1: Zach and I are not experts about mental health or mental illness or even self-care, even though these are things we're passionate about, and you can probably tell by listening to this podcast. We do have some resources linked uh, in the episode notes and on our social media, but we are going to read them here just so you have them. The first one is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's also a crisis text line. You text... Talk to 741 There's also a Veterans Crisis Line, which is text eight three eight two five five, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is afps.org.
0: The theme song to this podcast was written by Walker Lukens and performed by Walker, myself, Zach Catanzaro, Wes Esri, and mixed
1: and engineered by Grant Epley. This podcast is produced by me, Walker Lukens, Zach Catanzaro, Aaron Blackerby, Rylan Kettery, Jim Eno, Mike Lee, and brought to you by KUTX. If you like what you've been hearing, the best thing you can do
0: for us is tell somebody about it. Your friend, your boss, your mom, your dad, your little brother that you hate. Give them something nice for change.
1: And give um, them a gift.
0: If you would like to do more, please follow us. Rate us, review us, and tell us you love us.
1: Thank you so much to Kat Edmison for being
3: part of this.